On the Record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PwC on News Talk. Uh, lots to come up on the programme today and the front pages of today's papers have a, a nice bit of variety. Um, we'll start with the Sunday Independent. Uh, this leads with the new National uh, Maternity Hospital, uh, which is the first story that we'll discuss in our newspaper panel in just a moment. Um, almost two thirds of the public are dissatisfied with the proposed new structure and the ownership of the planned maternity hospital, which is, while a significant percentage, believes that there will be religious interference in the medical services provided, according to a Sunday Independent Ireland Thinks poll. The government plans to build a new hospital on a site owned by St Vincent's Health group in Elm Park. Of the 1,002 respondents polled yesterday, and this is the, the beauty of the Ireland Thinks polls, they're all done electronically, so you can turn around and answer very quickly. 45% of people said they believe there will be religious interference in the medical services provided, with 41% of the opposite view and 14% uncertain. Only 28% of people declare themselves satisfied with the new structure and ownership. 60% of people said they were unsatisfied and 12% unsure and there are more poll findings inside about that new National Maternity Hospital uh, which we may discuss in just a couple of minutes. Also on the front page of the Sunday Independent, Sinn Féin leader Mary Lou Macdonald has raised the prospect of a United Ireland referendum within the next five years after the party's landmark victory in the Northern Ireland Assembly elections. For the first time in the 100-year history of Northern Ireland, a nationalist or Republican party won most votes in an election that was also notable for the division seen among unionists and the emergence of a third force in the form of the Moderate Alliance Party. Miss Macdonald returned to her recent calls for a referendum to unite Ireland North and South, suggesting a border poll was possible within a five-year time frame. We'll be speaking to Mary Lou Macdonald after 12 o'clock this lunchtime on On The Record. The front page of the Business Post. The state agency in charge of road and public transport projects has begun a review of its multi-billion euro budget amid fears that key projects could be jettisoned in the face of huge construction cost increases, the Business Post has learned. The review by Transport Infrastructure Ireland will seek to determine how much the current budget can deliver and how many projects can actually be progressed within that funding envelope, according to an informed source. Uh, the move comes as the Business Post has learned the proposals aimed at tackling the cost of soaring construction inflation on national infrastructure projects are set to be completed by the Department of Public Expenditure and Reform. Basically, the long and the short of it is, they had allotted a certain amount for capital spending and for big infrastructure in the next 10 years, and now because of inflation, it's not going to go nearly as far as they thought it might, and some projects are not going to be going ahead in the way that we previously thought. Um, also on the front page of the Business Post, uh, which has done a lot of work on energy security and some of the impacts that we might have. Um, Daniel Murray tells us this morning that the state has moved to double the importation of emergency power generators to prevent blackouts as the gap between supply and demand continues to grow. More than €300 million Euro a year for the next two years is likely to be spent on emergency gas generators as demand for power accelerates past the planned supply, largely due to a proliferation of data centres. Airgrid, which is responsible for ensuring Ireland's power supply, will now import 600 megawatts of emergency gas generators. That is double the 300 megawatts that was announced late last year. €300 million Euro a year uh, for the next two years to ensure that we don't have blackouts. Now, front page of the Mail on Sunday, US President Biden to visit this October. John Lee tells us that American President Joe Biden is set to visit Ireland for a three-day trip planned for October. Security sources involved in the preparations confirm plans are already well underway for the presidential visit, which is due just ahead of the US midterm elections which is particularly striking because you would think given the struggles the Democrats might have uh, this November that uh, Joe Biden might be hanging around to campaign as much as possible. Maybe coming to Ireland is campaigning uh, in its own way. Uh, On the front page of the Sunday Times which is where we'll finish for now uh, Alliance Party marks the rise with victory in Paisley's Unionist heartland. Uh, Brian Mahan tells us uh, that North Antrim which is literally the political heartland of the Reverend Ian Paisley it is quite literally the DUP's home turf uh, only won one of the five uh, Northern Assembly seats in that constituency yesterday. That is because the Alliance... uh, 
managed to make some gains there. It's now going to be a counterweight to unionism and nationalism. Uh, the main story there is that Geoffrey Donaldson, who was elected to the Stormont Assembly on Thursday and got the second highest first preference vote of any candidate in the Stormont elections, may not actually take up his seat. He may actually remain as an MP in Westminster in an attempt to keep pressure on the British government over the Brexit protocol. Donaldson yesterday said that he was looking forward to dealing, uh, leading the DUP into a new assembly, but refused to commit himself to stepping away from the House of Commons within eight, day, eight days, as he is required to do in order to take up his position uh, as an MLA. Uh, the right to co-opt uh, replacements in the assembly does give Geoffrey Donaldson the option of staying in Westminster while the DUP vetoes the formation of a new executive. Donaldson could take up his seat in Stormont, where Sinn Féin is going to be the biggest party, once the political stalemate over forming an executive is resolved, which is a, a useful little act to be able to pull off, that you could potentially give up the seat that you've only just been elected to, uh, co-opt some other party member in its place and then just get them to resign if and when the protocol stuff is resolved um, to their satisfaction. So that is your tour of what's making the front pages um, of this morning's newspapers. We're joined in studio by Lauren Boland, a reporter with the Journal.ie, and by Jack Horgan-Jones, political reporter with the Irish Times and also the author of Pandemonium, Politics, Pandemics and Ireland's Response to the Pandemic. Um, you've had a busy week, so I really appreciate that you've actually just come in at all. Um, first of all, we'll start with the National Maternity Hospital because we're going to be talking more about Stormont in a little while. Um, that poll on the front page of the Sunday Independent suggesting that most people are unhappy with the ownership structure and a lot of people have some concerns around potential religious influence. All of it suggests, Jack, that uh, while you're off on book promo this week, um, that the government's uh, PR offensive to try and assure people that none of these things will come to pass doesn't really seem to be landing a punch. No, it doesn't actually. And I worked one day this week, which was Tuesday, so I got a kind okay. of I got I got a front a front row seat to the um the cabinet memo that wasn't on yeah. the National Maternity Hospital. Obviously, Stephen Donnelly bringing a proposal to cabinet, which would have proceeded with the the proposal on the National Maternity Hospital, but um, seemingly the political ground was not prepared for that. Mm. And I think that th- that's one of the most interesting things about this because talking to people throughout the week, as I understand it, that proposal actually went to went to the leaders about five weeks ago. And so I think there's wider questions here about how the coalition itself has handled this and perhaps also how the leaders themselves have prepared their uh, their various ministerial charges. So, so, this, so this was sent to the, uh, what they call the Cabinet Coordination Committee, that basically the little subcommittee of the three coalition leaders Five weeks ago, yeah, so I, and, and I, didn't get over I, the line I, then I, when it was I, brought to full cabinet for out for a kind of limited version, and we're going we're going very honours level here very quickly, but for a limited version of OBS, so you know observations on a yeah. cabinet memo from other government departments. But I think that it didn't go to all the other government departments; it just went to the leaders, is mm. my understanding. Okay. But still, they didn't seem to square away their respective uh, ministerial charges, mm. particularly which, on the green is, side, which is the point which of is, that meeting, isn't which it? is kind of the point exactly. Yeah. So, like, while I think Stephen Donnelly is in the firing line to to a greater extent than the wider coalition I think they also have have um, questions to, to answer yeah. on this as well I think that the the position of the Minister for Health on this one is, is really interesting as well I don't know if you were amidst all the um, all the live updates from the North yesterday keeping an eye on Stephen Donnelly's Twitter account but he was uh, I can push alerts for Stephen Donnelly's Twitter account he, was, he was he was a pretty busy man for Saturday it was really interesting wasn't it he yeah. was fighting this rearguard action engaging with people left right and centre yeah so, so for those who don't follow Stephen Donnelly on Twitter he did spend a lot of yesterday directly replying to people who were in his mention complaining about perceived religious influence or religious ownership of the new facility. He, of course, says that neither will come to pass and neither is true. But the very fact that a minister spent their entire day replying back to people absolutely. trying to he's, counter he's, what he sees as information. dug in. And I think that that speaks to two things. On the first hand, I think it shows to the, the extent to which 
He is very much in the market for a landmark political achievement at the moment um, with the possibility of a reshuffle coming up before the end of the year. Mm. Um, and it also shows, you know, the, the, the centrality of this to one of the things that he has put at the centre of his political programme, which is women's health. You know, so I think that if this was seen to be kind of mishandled or miscalculated in any way, way shape or form, it would be damaging for Stephen Donnelly. But there are, of course, wider questions for uh, for the coalition and for the electorate. And I think that the, the Sunday Independent poll this morning is particularly interesting because it shows that those issues which have emerged into which would emerge into the foreground over the last week or so are really getting a purchase with people, you know? Yeah. And one of the, I think the headline in, in the um, Sunday Independent is, is slightly misleading because it's talking about property uh, issues taking primacy over over control, but mm. I don't think the two can be so so neatly disentangled. No. Because aren't, aren't the questions really tied up that concerns about the legal structure underpinning it and concerns over control of the land are actually, you know, yeah. more linked to them the, being a Trojan horse. Yeah, the, the, for, they're, they're sort of in, inseparable in a certain way, but I suppose there's some who are happy with the, the legal assurances based on the documents this week but still who would have some some niggles about why we have a voluntary hospital in, in this day and age anyway um, that Sunday Independence Ireland Things poll question are you satisfied with the structure and ownership of the new National Maternity Hospital no 60% yes 28% 12% don't know and question two do you believe there will be any religious influence on the medical services provided at the new hospital yes 45% no 41% 14% don't know which I suppose Lauren illustrates maybe why Stephen Donnelly thinks it's necessary to spend his day countering what he sees as misinformation on Twitter but it does illustrate that there is a serious job to do if this has to go back to cabinet in two weeks and presumably can't afford to be deferred any further that the government has a serious battle on its hands to convince people that what it's saying is actually true Absolutely and that's the catch 22 there they need to assuage those fears among people while at the same time trying to actually keep progressing the project and not holding out any longer for this hospital to come in. I think it's really interesting that divide between when you see it there in black and white, the kind of people polled on who who does and who doesn't think that there'll be a religious influence on, on the on the medical services. 45% yes, 41% no. And then a sizable uncertainty level there, mm. 14%. I'm nearly amazed that there's only 14% of people who say don't know because yes. surely there's been so much claim and counterclaim. You understand I, I if more people were on the fence. as well. And yeah. I think... I, what you mentioned there about the, the this kind of idea of misinformation being uh, toted around that the Stephen Donnelly and some others have said that the problem is just that there's disinformation going around now about the hospital. Mm. Um, I, I, I think that's that that that's not cutting to the heart of, of the issues that people are raising. I think people are rightly really concerned about the hospital because of the legacy in Ireland that we have with religious influence over institutions, particularly around women's healthcare. And uh, it feels a little bit glib maybe to kind of dismiss that as a, you know, simply misinformation. Yeah. Mm. The idea that could happen again. I think Maeve Sheehan in the Sunday Independent there makes an interesting point where she says that um, conspiracy theories or what you say, uh, Conspiracy theories flourish in information vacuums and it's the government's obligation to fill that vacuum with clear, indisputable facts and some have been slow in coming to the public domain. And I think that's true that, you know, if the government, in its view, thinks that there's misinformation around the hospital, it does have mm. to fill that with facts. I think, I think on the other hand, people feel that they do have the facts in hand and, and, and they aren't happy with what those facts are showing. Yeah. Um, but from the government's position, it, it, has, it has a long way to go to, to assuage some of those fears. Well, I suppose a lot of it, Jack, is, is never going to be solved because even if the government has published uh, most of the documents behind all of this then you have rows which may seem Jesuitical but may also be quite germane about you know, for example what is the meaning of clinically appropriate services mm. the government says it will offer clinically appropriate services because it's a maternity hospital so uh, clinically appropriate services would not include oncology or uh, other treatments which are entirely different branches of medicine 
But then others would say, well, who is it to decide what is clinically appropriate in, in reproductive health? And does that mean that a pro-life doctor or somebody who was hired and explicitly has that ethos could basically veto the provision mm. of services on a case-by-case basis? And, and that, unless you put something else in black and white to say what is specifically appropriate... That's a row you can't, you can never solve. Because mm, it's literally a he said, she said. Yeah, exactly. or in most cases, probably a he said, he said. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Look, exactly, and and one of the problems here is that um, there's very little common ground between the two opposing camps. You know, you have one side saying that you know the clinically appropriate language is a Trojan horse, and you know is going to be uh, the back door for a Catholic ethos that will animate, or potentially at least. Uh, brings the risk that yeah. it will animate a lot of the clinical practices at the hospital and the other side saying look this is a this is effectively kind of um this is flat pack language and actually saying it's it's it, it's something that came from the HSE mm. as well so there's 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 a dialogue of the deaf going on here i think and the two camps are so diametrically opposed and 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 i think that's what often happens when in these issues when they kind of descend to to the to the level of culture war and i think that that's why there's going to be so much focus on uh, these Oireachtas Committee hearings next week uh, when Stephen Donnelly and Peter Boylan, who is, yeah. you know, the the the, um, the bête noire for yeah. uh, so many people who are involved in, in promoting the, yeah. the well, hospital. Is, is it fascinating that the likes of Peter Boylan is also to be invited in? Because that, to me, seems to raise the bar an awful lot. Because I, I don't know in which, in which order they're going to appear. But, for example... If you bring in Peter Boylan and he attends first and he gives mm. evidence before Stephen Donnelly does, at least it gives Donnelly a chance to address the points that have already been made, albeit perhaps maybe from a high bar because Peter Boylan speaks very confidently and authoritatively. So it's it's a very high bar to clear. Mm. But if, for example, Donnelly was in on, on Wednesday morning and then Peter Boylan gets invited in on Thursday morning and he may reanimate some doubts that we thought Donnelly had put to bed mm. and that's the last we hear of it before then it goes to cabinet next week. It does suddenly, like it raises genuine questions as to whether this whole process, which was intended to calm down public fears, yeah. will actually have worked. I think that's true and I think it's also, like why is it only the two lads going in as well? Do you know, so uh, uh, as I understand well, it... There may be more. There may be more, yeah, but as I understand it, a lot of the concerns that were raised, so there was a lot of briefings towards the back end of last week, particularly for Green Party members. And a lot of the concerns that were raised uh, with Shane Higgins, who's the master of the National Maternity Hospital mm. at the moment, who came in and gave his presentation on why it's such a needed clinical facility, were of a legal nature. So if we end up in a situation where you have a politician and a doctor going in to answer questions which are, you know, by and large, more situated on legal grounds, mm. then the, 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 the question that flows from that is, the extent to which that should be answered by the time the thing goes to Captain the, the following week. Yeah. Um, I kind of have a sneaking suspicion that we might not actually have all this squared away in time for it to go to Cabinet in two weeks. And that I wouldn't be, I, I still think it's more likely than not that it will go to Cabinet, but mm. I wouldn't be massively surprised if at the end of the day there was another kick for touch. And then there, that becomes a big credibility issue. Um, Colin well, Murphy... Because if, if you delay it a second time, then people will wonder, well, how long is a piece of string and can exactly. the government afford to keep elongating it for, for concerns that it says don't hold water anyway? Yeah, but and Colin Murphy has a really excellent piece on this in the Sunday Independent. It's worth reading its entirety. But in towards the end, he raises this question and he harks back to, to other previous controversies, the Catherine Zappone appointment and the Tony Holland appointment. Mm. While they may not have many parallels on the surface of it, he says that there are questions asked about the capacity of government to actually you know institute what it wants to do and you know the capacity the the, the degree to which projects seem to be getting bogged down left right and center yeah and um, so i think that it's a really interesting one and i think that you know next week there's going to be a huge amount of um 
there's going to be a huge amount of political mm. pressure on the government to deliver on this. Uh, I've just been checking the Eurocta schedule actually while Jack is speaking there. Uh, Stephen Donnelly is confirmed to attend the Eurocta's Health Committee on Wednesday morning. They ha- haven't, as of yet, confirmed any other time slots for Peter Boylan or anyone else. There was some talk about Professor Deirdre Madden, who's the deputy chair of the HSE board, who dissented from them signing she off. She has to get a pass though, doesn't she? She, would have, she, uh, would she have may to... have to get a pass to be able to breach confidentiality of board meetings, which which will be um, tricky. But there's there's some talk of potentially her being invited on. But again, I think all of it Surely there's merit the in that as well, though. I mean, if, the, if two members of the HSE board have dissented from this, I mean, yeah. you, can't, you, can't, you can't reasonably claim that this is the actions of a kind of fringe group, you know, critical of everything. Yeah, well, you know, but, the, the, but, these are people Particularly given her, her qualifications board. and her, exactly. her, her standing to, to be able to reach conclusions that she has. Um, Lauren, d- does a lot of this come down to, uh, because th- this is the, the presentation that we the government is putting forward, it's the presentation that Vincent's is putting forward, and it's a presentation that many people just can't get their heads around. The idea that a an overtly religious group, the Religious Sisters of Charity, um, which had an, uh, a, an ownership stake in a very profitable private healthcare group, would hand it over to a secular charity for a euro and then expect there to be no religious running in its future endeavours. Like, that is effectively what we're being asked to believe. And maybe they are, maybe it's literally an act of charity from the religious sisters. But a lot of people are just, to go back to your previous point, they're just so distrusting of religions in general that they just don't buy it. I think that's exactly it. I think it's it's a bit of a hard, a hard one to swallow for a lot of people that it would, it would be that black and white. And you know what? I mean, maybe it is, but I don't think there there's not confidence there that there won't be a religious ethos affecting the treatment that women or babies receive in the hospital and I think coming back to to what Jack was talking about around uh, that that clinically appropriate term uh, you know the government has come out and said no that's that is going to be a services that are are what you would expect in a maternity hospital, yeah. as in we're not going to be suddenly going into neurology or the like. Yeah. Um, but I've I've seen the point made, which I think is is, is really prudent that you c- this is a two hundred ninety nine year lease. We can't envision what kind of interpretation is going to be made of that mm. term in a hundred years, two hundred years. Now, obviously, the government is saying that's beyond the lifetime of the hospital anyway. Mm. But, but I mean, some people have even taken issue with that because obviously we have hospitals in Ireland that have been around for you know a couple yeah. of centuries. Well, the existing national charity yeah. hospital has been around for a exactly. couple of centuries. So I think yeah. you know that also feels a little bit mm, questionable, like that assertion that oh well, it it, it doesn't matter because we're not going to be using it by then anyway. Surely we should be building things to last. Mm. Um, but anyway, um, yeah, I think and I think you know, I mean, people, it would be great to, to to feel able to believe that. I think everyone would like to believe what the government is coming out and saying around it's fine, everything's going to be above board, there's not going to be any influence there. Everyone would like to believe that but I just think because of the, the legacy that we have around, you know, institutional abuse and kind of the treatment of mothers and that um, there, you, it, it's not a, an easy expectation mm. for the public to come, to come and you know, sign up to that yeah. without some kind of I suppose concrete proof it's yeah. interesting because I like I think one of the kind of the central uh, threads to the government argument is one that you, that you come across a lot in in Middle Ireland, which is you know that that the church is gone, the church state relationship, and and you know the the uh, the vestiges of church power within the state is is a thing of the past, and I think that that's very difficult for people, particularly uh, women, to to accept at face value because they have a more recent history of you know how the church. Um, ethos still animates certain institutions it's equally hard for groups of the groups like um gay gay teachers you know yeah. for example i think the INTO did a uh, survey not too distant past saying they think about 4000 gay teachers can't be open about who they are and about their sexuality because of yeah, the ethos of, of employment issues exactly yeah. yeah so it's it, it it's easy but it is i think a conceit 
to yeah. say that this is a thing of the past it's in the past don't worry about it I, I do want to get to a break but there's one other uh, piece in uh, page 2 of the business post which relates to the, the new maternity hospital and that is that the HSE's business case for relocating it is undergoing a technical review by the Department of Health the department last year rejected the HSE's submission over concerns that there was a lack of evidence about the value for money in the plan to relocate from Hollis Street to St Vincent's campus. A spokesperson for the department said this weekend that an updated plan to ensure compliance with public spending rules has been submitted and is now being reviewed by the department. Um, not to run the risk of bringing you straight into um, honours maths again on this, Jack, but if the, the department hasn't actually signed off mm. on the business... That, that seems like a big obstacle that they haven't and yet they overcome. they saw a buy for this last year as well. Yeah. I think Steve Donnelly approached his party colleague Michael McGrath and said, look, you know, can we get a bit of flexibility on the public service, uh, the public spending rules? Yeah. He said, no, you can't. You can understand why not because like it's a billion euro hospital it's so bit, and it's not... to be done in high compliance. <laughs> but like, it, yeah. it just seems like there's a lot of cart before the horse that if you're trying to push through the arrangements to get this signed off and yet the Department of Health hasn't managed to convince the paymasters that there's value for money in doing this. Exactly. And it's not as if we uh, have, uh, you know, anything but a very checkered history in this country when it comes to bringing in hospital projects mm. on time in the very recent past. I think that that, that, that piece on page two of the business post should actually be read in conjunction with the piece on page one about um, infrastructure costs rising and so on and so forth. So if, if we manage to square away this yeah. this extremely nasty political ethical row over who gets the run it, perhaps there's another nasty row over how much it's going to cost yeah. and when it's going to be delivered waiting in the wings. Uh, we'll be talking to solicitor Simon McGar in the second hour of the show. He has been reading through the documents. He has described the whole thing as a powder keg to which St. Vincent's holds the matches. So we'll get him to, to sound out some of his concerns uh, a little bit later in the programme. Stay with us though here on the record. Jack and Lauren back with me in a couple of moments where we're going to talk about those elections north of the border. It is Gavin Riley with you uh, on the record until one o'clock. Uh, somebody who called themselves Noble Guardian on Twitter, uh, who I understand uh, can't use their actual name because they are a practicing consultant in the health service and doesn't feel like they are uh, at liberty to use their own name. Um, they point out uh, using the hashtag on the record NT uh, that you can't ever supply clinically inappropriate services. So the argument about the phrase clinically appropriate is irrelevant to begin with. And it says that even if the site was on public land, it wouldn't prevent a closeted pro-life doctor being accidentally hired and stymieing clinical care. And therefore the discussion around governance and the ownership of the site is actually a bit moot because you can never really uh, control what any individual doctor is going to decide in any individual case which is an interesting thought keep your thoughts coming on the record NT is the hashtag on Twitter 53106 for your texts Um, time to talk about matters uh, north of the border and the outcome of the Stormont elections Jack and Lauren are still with me in studio we're also joined now on the line uh, by David McCann who's a lecturer in politics at Ulster University and also the deputy editor of Slugger O'Toole Um, David now that we have uh, all the seats filled all the, the ballot papers counted um, Sinn Féin, the largest party, 27 seats, the DUP falling to 25. Uh, is there anything more than symbolism to Sinn Féin now holding the, the title of First Minister, prospectively? Well, legally, it is totally symbolic. I mean, so Michelle O'Neill today has no more real power than she did before. So the only difference is, is that Sinn Féin will likely, or if my DeHaunt mechanism calculations are right, this is, mm-hmm. and for anyone who doesn't know, DeHaunt is how we allocate seats in our executive Sinn Féin will have the most seats in the executive, so they would have three, because don't forget, the FDLP do not qualify for the executive now. Which because we'll they won so few seats that, that even if they, they want to, so they can't seats. join in. Yeah, yeah, and that's historic for, for the FDLP. They have never not had enough support to qualify for the executive. That's how far the FDLP have fallen. But, um, but, but, but so, so Sinn Féin have a wee bit more power there, but in terms of the first ministership, it really isn't anything more. As I said to you before, um, Gavin, when I was on with you, she gets to meet the Queen first. Um, uh, that's what the First Minister of Northern Ireland gets to do. And yeah, that is, that's, that's that is, that is, that is nearly... 
And, uh, and yeah, and I don't think that's what Mary Lou and Michelle were cheering about in the Count Centre in Belfast yesterday. Um, uh, so, so, so but, but, but a storming result for them, uh, Gavin, because don't forget, we were talking in 2017 that Sinn Féin had peaked. They had got just below 28% of the vote. Mm-hmm. They increased their vote to 29%. They were meant to lose seats. They had seven or eight marginal seats going into this election. Not only did they hold all of them, they upped their margins in all of these seats. I'll give you one, one, one key statistic tells the tale. In Southdown, they won 44% of the vote, right? Okay. At the last election, they won about 37% of the vote in Southdown. They actually left a seat on the pitch in Southdown. They only ran two candidates, but had they ran three, they would have won. <laughs> they would have got three in. So, so, so they actually left some seats on the pitch. So, so kind of like, kind of like what they did. Yeah, it's kind uh, of echoes of the in two years ago. Yeah, the, the, yeah. The, the, uh, there was a wee bit of a similar thing. So Sinn Féin narrowly missed out on two other seats in East Derry and in Upper Ban, and they also left a seat on the pitch in Southdown. So that results. So, so they do have targets for the next election to grow. Um, we see on the front page of the Sunday Times this morning and I know this was the, the talk of uh, some active consideration indeed I was listening to, to Radio Ulster but you might have been discussing it when you were uh, in the hot seat on, on BBC One Television for the last couple of days as well this idea that Geoffrey Donaldson who has only just now been elected to uh, the Stormont Assembly in Lagan Valley um, got the second uh, highest number of first preference votes of any of the 230 candidates who fought the elections this week may not actually take up the seat because he might just uh, stand aside and remain in Westminster yeah. and have some other DUP, uh, basically a surrogate in his place for as long as he wants to, to remain in Westminster. Um, firstly, how likely do you think that is? And secondly, what will be the significance of doing it? Well, um, the DUP are being very coy about that. Uh, he was pressed on, on BBC television about that. A number of DUP representatives um, were pressed about it. They've been playing very coy. So for anyone who may, who may wonder, well, how can he do that? In the Northern Ireland Assembly, we've got the co-option system. So basically, once once a party once a party candidate wins the seat, that seat for the mandate belongs to that party. So the nominating officer of the DUP can just slot someone else in there. Um, he has so in, in has effect, then you be... are you are not really electing candidates almost by that view. You are just electing the party. So oh, if the yeah. DUP yeah, won I mean, it, two seats in that constituency, then it's up to them basically to decide out of whim yeah. which two people yeah, fill them. Uh, and we saw that. And a fact for you, Gavin, by the time we got to just before this election, a quarter of the MLAs had been co-opted. So Sinn Féin, for example, had moved, uh, had moved in, moved out candidates in places like Foyle, in South Down, and the DP had done that as well. So, I mean, it's an absolute barking system that mm. needs to... That, well, that, we should that, just that say to people as well who aren't familiar with it, it's, it's not necessarily all that wild or unfair because you could have Westminster elections in the meantime where somebody who is an MLA then gets elected to the House of Commons, they leave a seat behind. Rather than yeah. having by-elections, they just fill it with the same, yeah. uh, same party. So th- there is some rationale to it. There is some rationale to it, and, and you're right, and that did happen. You know, people like Carla Lockhart, who were MLAs, then got elected as the MP for, for Upper Band, for example. But, um, but, but, so he's got a week to make this decision. He did co-opt in a councillor before when Edwin Poots moved to South Belfast, uh, Paul Rankin, uh, who was put in for 53 days. There is talk that he could maybe uh, come back and Jeffrey Donaldson stays. And why would Jeffrey Donaldson do that? Because, as you've been pointing out, if Jeffrey Donaldson leaves his House of Commons seat, he would have to force a by-election. And the DUP party vote, even though they did pull more vote, more votes in Lycan Valley, uh, Alliance did make a gain. They did win two seats. And the DUP would just be slightly worried that there could be the potential for a bit of a protest vote to go against them. So it'll be it'll be interesting to see. I mean, Jeffrey Donaldson, I suppose, could say, well, look, we've still got protocol negotiations ongoing. I need to keep pressure on the British government. I need to be in the House of Commons. And he makes a commitment to return back to the Assembly at some point. But it would be 
hugely cynical, I think. I, I don't think it would certainly improve the DUP's image uh, if he did do that, because it would come across as fairly cynical. And you're right, he got the second most first prize. Over 12,000 people voted for Jeffrey Donaldson in Lagan Valley. And it wouldn't really, um, it, it, would just, it would just come across as a bit cynical. And I don't think in the longer term, it would actually help you, uh, the, the, the DUP. But you, you could argue that if, if the DUP says it's not going to form an executive until the, the protocol stuff is sorted out, the protocol stuff isn't going to be fixed by Stormont. It's going to be fixed by the British government in Westminster. So yeah. it might make more sense then for the, the, the titular leader of unionism to be in Westminster agitating for that and holding the Prime Minister to account at, at Prime, Prime Minister's questions every week. Yeah, and that, and that will be the DP's argument. I mean, we'll wait and see if Jeffrey um, actually follows through and does this. Again, we'll find that out pretty soon because he doesn't have a lot of time. He has yeah. to do this in the next few days. Uh, but yeah, I suspect if he does do it, that will be the argument um, that he will use. Now, just before the election, of course, his party colleague Edwin Poots moved into South Belfast and that created a vacancy in Lagan Valley. And a lot of people were tipping Jeffrey Donaldson to move back and then potentially hold a by-election on the same day as the Assembly elections. Um, but he didn't. He put in, as I said, Paul Rankin uh, as the replacement um, uh, for Edmund Puth. So again, yeah, you're right. He could use that logic. He's not the only one that does. I mean, Colin Eastwood, for example, who's the SDLP leader, he's made the argument, well, look, with Brexit and the protocol, you yeah, know, I need to I'm be at Westminster. I need to be there yeah. in the case. So he isn't the only party leader making that argument. Um, talk to me just very briefly before I let you go about the, the TUV, because um, there's some argument that, you know, if, if no executive is formed in the next six months, then legally speaking, you're supposed to hold another election. Um, the TUV yeah. has managed to splinter the unionist vote quite successfully, but it hasn't managed to convert that into seats. Uh, is there a case to be made that if you gave the traditional unionist voice, the party of Jim Allister, if you gave them six months notice, they would organise themselves better. They would concentrate their vote in specific constituencies so that they could actually win more seats, which would probably be at the expense of the DUP. And therefore, it's almost in their electoral interest to get a, a deal running this time because a repeat election might not go their way. Well, yeah, but I, I, I suppose I would do that in the other way. I mean, for the DUP, they can now make a strong argument to the Unionist electorate of saying the, D, the TUV can not win. And it was, it was remarkable. I cannot think of an STV system where this has happened that a party pulls more than 7% of the vote and gains no extra seats. Um, mm. I don't think I've ever seen that because TV candidates in places like Strangford actually pulled well, but they just sat there. They got no transfers. They literally just sat there. Stephen Cooper uh, got, I think, over 5,000 first preferences and just sat there. I, he did, I've never, ever actually seen, seen that before in a Northern election. So, so, so I think for the TUV, Jim Alistair said this himself, if he brought no one else back with him, that would be a failure for the TUV. And I think you saw him at the Trine Centre's he was under pressure, I think, as he saw his prospects draining away from him, because he knows in places like North Belfast, East Belfast, East Antrim, that the DUP now, and the DUP are already putting out this message where the DUP say, look, if you have the DUP vote and the TV vote together, you get higher than the Sinn Féin vote. And we're seeing that message going out. I think that is going to be very difficult for the TUV uh, to fight an assembly election because the DUP will be able to go around those voters and say, and say, the TUV yeah, cannot win in this. Just come back to us. Look at the votes. Yeah. Look at the preferences. They cannot win. We can. You need to get behind us. Uh, David, thanks for your insight this morning. David McCann is a lecturer in politics at Ulster University and he's the deputy editor of the Slugrow Tool website, slugrowtool.com. Uh, still joined in studio by Lauren Boland of the journal.ie and Jack Horgan Jones uh, of the Irish Times. Um, we've seen a lot, and again, it's repeated today in the front page of uh, some of the newspapers about uh, how this might advance the cause of a border poll, Jack. Uh, mm. It's worth kind of reminding people that a border poll is not called by Stormont, it's not called by Dublin, it's called by Westminster, and they don't seem to be wanting for turning. Yeah, exactly. Like so, I think what this does do, right, is give rhetorical prominence to the idea of a border poll, and it puts in place one of the pieces of the jigsaw, which I think, from a Sinn Féin planning point of view, 
would culminate in them being in government on both sides of the border and presenting that uh, post an election in the Republic mm. as some kind of effective or quasi-mandate to hold a border poll or to man- demand for a border poll to be held. But you're right, I don't think it moves it anywhere quickly. Mm. Um, and I think what we will... I was listening to Mary Lou MacDonald in one of the Ken centres uh, in the North over the weekend and she was Just talking again here in about 25 minutes <laughs> yes she was ta- she was talking about the time frame on this she was saying you know before the end of the decade and you know the 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 important thing for Sinn Féin now is to begin to start to plan for it so I think that you know under the rubric of planning for a united Ireland I think perhaps we might be we might expect Sinn Féin to start you know articulating what that might mean but on the other hand you know a border poll and united Ireland didn't really take centre stage in the Sinn Féin pre-election messaging in the North. Mm. So I think that that in, in, in many ways may be more instructive mm. as to how... It, you know, what uh, were they campaigning for then if they weren't going around looking for a vote for us to end the existence of... So you, like, like, what were they looking for? I, I'll be totally frank, I didn't really tune in massively to this. It was quality of life issues, which is funny considering they're in, they're yeah. in government for so long. Um, but like I think again that might be instructive when it comes to, to imagining how they might run an election campaign down here. Again, not foregrounding the border issue, not foregrounding the constitutional or legal questions that are inherent in their in their core political project but instead going after more bread and butter issues and a very very professional and effective vote management system which mm. maximizes their output not with not yeah. the fact that they seem to have left two or three seats on the no on they've the done very in well North. in other areas where they, if they were running three candidates that they managed to split the vote very finely among the three so that mm. they brought them in including michelle o'neill herself who brought in two running mates in mid-ulster because she managed to manage her own vote uh, very well um, lauren the other story of these elections has been the rise of the alliance party which has uh, not only come at the cost of some votes to the SDLP and the Ulster Unionists but it also means that the Green Party for example um, now will have no seats in Stormont that won two seats last time around and now it's been uh, completely wiped out and it sort of begs the question then as to whether there is actually a lot of people would like for Northern Ireland to be less constitutionally polarised they'd like there to be a big middle ground where you have like you know conservatives and unionists who are liberals who have nothing to do with Ireland or Britain just fight things on their own issues doesn't seem like we're really getting that way if you've got a, a large middle ground party but that you don't have space for the likes of a Greens only one seat for the likes of a people before profit. Yeah, I, I don't think realistically I don't think we're ever going to see that situation in Northern Ireland certainly no, not true. certainly yeah. not the way things stand now. Um, well that wasn't not a thing you first minister is agitating for a border poll. No, yeah. no, I mean there might not be time. Um, I'm, I, th- I think interestingly actually Leo Varadkar was c- congratulating the Alliance Party on its performance and he, he made some comments saying that it was really encouraging to see this kind of you know uh, centrist party kind of, of having that sort of success mm. sort of not ruffling too many feathers I think taking that line on it um, I think uh, yeah I think again the, the Green Party will obviously be disappointed in their performance and um, particularly I think you know there was obviously some momentum kind of in, in our most recent election here around the Green Party before you know they came into government they, yeah. did, they did obviously most, do yeah. well kind of um, and I think you know maybe they had hopes of, of seeing a similar kind of green surge up there or I mean, a green surge might be putting it too kindly <laughs> but um uh, obviously that that was not borne out yeah. um, and they won't be happy there uh, I sat here just under three years ago and we talked about uh, the local elections weekend about a green wave uh, that seems like an, an awful long time ago mm. now uh, Jack Horgan Jones of the Irish Times and Lauren Boland of the journal.ie still with me in studio there is still uh, lots more in the papers about the outcome of the Stormont elections and Jack you had picked out a piece on page 10 of the Sunday Independent by uh, the pollster Kevin Cunningham who um, has been running all these opinion polls for the Sunday Independent as, as part of Ireland Thinks and, and I mentioned the the advantage that they have of doing it all electronically so they can turn around robust answers uh, very quickly. But he's talking about the uh, the supposed march towards a united Ireland and how, although that might be the, the momentum in Northern Ireland, that we're still a long way mm. from, from having, actually having it as a reality. 
Yeah, so interesting interesting uh, poll results. Um, are you in favour of a referendum on removing the border? 51% yes, 35% no. And how would you vote in a referendum took place, if a referendum took place today on a united Ireland? 57% in favour, 24% opposed. But the, the whole kind of thrust of this piece is that, like, it's not a fait accompli. And actually, he makes a very interesting point that failed referendums on issues such as uh, the ab- abolition of the Shannad, um had uh, like more favourable uh, indicators at the outset. So on current uh, so, polling, so right now when he says 50, 57% of people are in favour of United Ireland if there was a referendum today that Shannad abolition was yeah. higher at the outset than... It, then this would be exactly yeah. yeah. So basically, on current on current polling, you couldn't be confident that it's going to pass. And then he also talks about the shifting demographics in the north, where you know the unionist majority has been eroded, but it's a, getting eroded at quite a slow pace. And mm. um, meanwhile, the nationalist vote, and it's a it's a it's a it's a point that Leo Radcliffe makes on the front page of the Sunday Times as well. The nationalist vote is still you know in the high thirties, hovering yeah, under forty percent. So Sinn Fein are doing well, but it's yeah. because they're they're ultimately taking votes from the SDLP and not necessarily from anyone else. Exactly, yeah. And I, it's it's interesting in and of itself that Varadkar has kind of demurred from the the kind of the, the, the government line both in London and in Dublin, which is, you know, very much down the middle, former executive, get on with it, respect the mandate, and he's mm-hmm. kind of getting a little bit more into the punditry. But the Kevin Cunningham piece is very interesting. He talks about, like, you know, uh, evidence from the Labour Force uh, survey. Um, you talk about uh, people self-identifying as other um, as we return to something we were talking about in terms of that 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 third force within Northern Irish politics, yeah. um, going from six to seventeen percent, and I think that an interesting associated point. All this talk about um, about the border poll and the potential for you know the TUV effect within unionism, perhaps to kind of move unionism to a more kind of dogmatic or reactionary place. Yeah. That if that happens. You know, and if that the the Northern Irish pol- polity was to get more polarized, perhaps that would also conversely increase the number of people who feel alienated by those two poles and more and are more attracted into the um I was about to say the SDLP, but they didn't do very yeah, well at yeah. all <laughs> into the Alliance Party camp, you know. So the, so the more and more you agitate for a border poll, the more you will just send people into the arms of an agnostic party. Potentially, yeah. Well, I, I heard that, that argument being put forward because I know that one of the issues now that the, the crossroads that unionism is at now that it no longer gets to claim the title uh, of, of First Minister, there's been some talk of there being some kind of union conference or basically some mm. sort of like rally where the three of them, the three major parties and others get around and have a big naval gaze and figure out where unionism is going mm. and whether that might lead to there being a single unionist uh, party or a single unionist vehicle in Stormont. But they and, agree and, on very little and, as well. And, well, well people know. saying, well, you, also, you can't do that because then you're, you're making hardliners. Like uh, still a third of unionists mm. still after 25 years vote for Ulster Unionist Party, the party of David Trimble. And that if you just decide to create this broad church of hardline unionism, then you're going to lose their votes to the alliance as well. So yeah, you but it, yourself in the foot by doing it. But but it, but it, I mean, there was no great endorsement for a kind of liberal progressive unionism really at this election, that, that's was the story there? I mean, Doug, Doug well, Beatty really struggling to hold on to his yeah. seat, you know, and and it wasn't so long ago we were talking about the Beatty bounce and all the rest of it. Yeah. I just don't, you it's know, more of a, a Beatty battle this time around. Laura, actually, what do you make of that? The, the decline of the SDLP as moderate nationalists and the decline of the SDLP as as moderate unionists, because you know they they were. Not that this entitled you to, to run the place forever, but they were the parties that helped to create Stormont in the first place. Now it seems that they are very much yesterday's men. Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt that the, the profile is changing, but I guess actually coming back to that Kevin Cunningham piece, like the point that he makes is interesting around, even though there's these shifts within the parties, the overall kind of picture isn't necessarily one that has changed dramatically. So he's, he mentions how... Um, 
in this election in terms of a sectarian headcount. 40% voted for a nationalist party, but this figure is no different to 1998. In fact, mm. in all elections since 1998, the nationalist vote has barely shifted, hovering typically just below 40%. So, and actually, thinking about that from the unionist side as well, I mean, I think... Sam McBride on, on page 14 of the Sunday Independent makes makes the interesting point of how Jeffrey Donaldson has kind of criticised the other unionist parties suggesting that they are sort of fracturing the vote um, when actually, the, you know, the DUP came in and, 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 and grew itself on the basis of taking votes from, from the UUP. Yeah. Um, and, and there's maybe some kind of hypocr- hypocritical comments going on there. Um, so I think... I, I, but I do think that point by Kevin going in was interesting that, you know, even though there's, there's these shifts within parties and, and those do matter, certainly in terms of, you know, forming um, the executive, it, it, it's its implications for, I suppose, a wider policy, particularly around a border poll, is maybe not as seismic as, as it might immediately mm. appear to be. Uh, I see Brandon Lewis has just been speaking to Sky News inside the last 10 or 15 minutes or so. He's been speaking to David Blevins, uh, Sky Senior Correspondent in the North. So we'll, we'll see what he's had to say about it and we can bring it to you later in the programme if we can uh, get a hold of anything meaningful that he said. Not a man not a man who endeared himself to unionism, of course, with his interventions in the days and the yeah. run-in to, well, actually, to the poll. Another thing that I thought really fascinating was that he, he spoke on Wednesday night to ITV saying, no, we're not going to or dialing down this idea that yeah. we're going to introduce domestic law that can negate the protocol yeah, exactly, yeah. and uh, no one could report on it in the north until Friday morning because they have uh, a quasi moratorium in line with our own they also, so, have, they also have the internet though. Well, well, <laughs> yeah, as do we down here uh, one thing I should find very fascinating about the, the poll that um, Kevin Cunningham has carried out for the, this Independent he asks uh, the entirely hypothetical question of if you had a vote, and this is yeah. a poll among Southern voters, if you had a vote in the Northern Ireland Assembly elections taking place, uh, which of the following parties would you vote for? 39% of people said they would vote for Sinn Féin, which is higher than the number of people who said they'd vote for Sinn Féin uh, south of the border, which is kind of remarkable enough. 26% Alliance, 20% SDLP, which is interesting because it's the proxy sister party of both Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil, so it's only only a 20%. Um, 5% PBP, that's higher than they'd get in the south. 4% A2, which is higher than they'd get in the south. Uh, 1% of people said they'd vote for the DUP. 1% of people said they'd vote for the Ulster Unionists. And uh, none percent of people said they'd vote for the TUV, which is not all that surprising. But that more people would vote for Sinn Féin, hypothetically, for Stormont than they would for the Dáil. That's kind of remarkable, isn't it? Yeah, and on the same page in the Sunday Independent, we have the polling, say, for uh, the political parties down here. It's, it's mm. 34% for Sinn Féin, 23% for Fine Gael, and 16% for Fianna Fáil. Um, yeah. so, so the SDLP parties, as uh, sister parties, should be on 39, and they're on 20. And, and Sinn Féin has more support for a hypothetical election that we don't elect to than it does for yeah, its own I, legislature. I think people maybe don't necessarily make that connection straight away between the kind of the, the policies of SDLP and kind of comparison to Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil. I think, it, I think when you're asking, say, voters in the state how they would vote in Northern Ireland, because it's that hypothetical question and the sort of, you know, the, the wider policies around things like quality of life aren't ever going to affect that person who's making this hypothetical vote I think it probably does come down to more a kind of position around the, the nature of Northern Ireland like as a state mm. um, I think that's probably what people have at the forefront of their minds when they're 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 making their kind of hypothetical vote that they, they'll never actually have to make uh, Just while we have it open in front of us that poll also asks uh, which of the following issues should be mm. the two most important priorities to deal with uh, Jack uh, 60% of people still say the cost of living is the most important issue that it's needs down, to be addressed though, interesting. Uh, down 5 points based mm. on the previous month uh, housing is now a more pressing issue up 13 points yeah, in response and, to 50% and... is, is that driven by maybe a, an influx of Ukrainian refugees putting pressure on the existing stock? Quite possibly, yeah. Um, although I see the salience of the Russia-Ukrainian war is down seven points now. I mean, I'm not sure whether you know that reads across directly to the impact of the Russia-Ukrainian-Ukrainian war here. Yeah. But certainly, I think that there is 
a growing kind of nervousness about how the interaction between the extra pressure on housing and social housing um, is going to impact on the housing market here. Mm. And uh, it's worth mentioning as well, actually, the front page of the Sunday Times is an interesting story by Stephen O'Brien about uh, the extension of HAP, the housing assistance payment, yeah. uh, perhaps to, to, to help. Uh, one senior government source saying it may be that local authorities will have to rent accommodation on the same basis as they do for people who are on the social housing list. Uh, the mm. cabinet subcommittee in Ukraine will this week discuss other options to help people uh, still fleeing the Russian invasion. Ministers are also expected to agree the proposal to offer four hundred euro a month to people who accommodate refugees in their homes. Mm. It's in it's in keeping with the kind of the Department of Housing response to the Ukrainian um, crisis, the, the refugee crisis, which is to kind of pump prime and throw more money and throw more resources at pre existing mm. programs. But um, I think that you know if if this were to come to pass, it would prompt wider questions, uh, not only about you know the the, the provision to, to Ukrainian refugees and how that interacts with the provision for people who are already on pre existing social housing lists, but also yeah. the role of HAP within the wider housing market, the supplanting of of social housing uh, tenancies. Um, to, to ordinary tenancies and the competition mm. within the market between punters and the state. You know? uh, I want to give you the final word, Lauren, because we want to get a few seconds left. That poll also finds that uh, up two points, but only at 3%, that people think Northern Ireland and Brexit is the most important issue to sort out. And sign of the times, down six points in the last month, and now only 1% of people think that COVID-19 is an issue mm. that needs addressing. How times change. It's very stark, isn't it, seeing COVID-19 down second from the end of that list. I, I, it's interesting that education actually is, is the, the only one that people care less about than, mm. than COVID-19. Um, you'd think education might be a little bit higher there. But yeah, very stark that COVID-19, it seems to be really kind of pushed out of people's Very minds glad now. I didn't just write a book on COVID. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's grand, but now, now that it's been fixed, of course, now now you can write the conclusive last exactly. word on it. Uh, Jack has written a book about COVID-19, pan, uh, Pandemonium, uh, now published by Gill Books, uh, co-written with Hugh O'Connell. That's available in all good bookshops and some shoddy ones now as well. Jack Horgan jones political reporter with the Irish Times and Lauren Boland, reporter with the Journal.ie. Thank you both very much for joining us. On the record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PWC. Sunday morning at 11. On News Talk.